Take your Bible and uh, turn to the book of Romans, where we're at tonight. Romans chapter 13. Verse 1 says this, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. As you're aware, we're working our way through this uh, 13th chapter of Romans, trying to come to an understanding biblically of government and our responsibility to government as believers. Now, obviously, uh, we're living in a times where the culture has taken a distinctly anti-Christian turn in its attitude and agenda. And there's greater greater evil and debauchery and violence and corruption and anarchy literally all around us. Uh, the, the Christian worldview that at least at once somewhat was the undergirding of this country is completely gone. And not too many years ago, people in this country uniformly disapproved of homosexuality and, and adultery and divorce. Uh, they believed that sexual promiscuity was wrong, disdained, uh, they disdained profanity, Uh, They saw abortion as unthinkable, and public officials were held to a very high standard morally and ethically. But those times have changed. And the Christian influence on this culture that once again shaped the values of our country and and really Western uh, civilization in general for all intents and purposes have been lost. And as a result, we're living in an increasingly pagan society where reason has been completely thrown out where the depraved mind has taken over and it really governs and rules and promotes things that are completely against God and his agenda. And, and not only that is, uh, and that's not only seen on the personal level, but really now civil governmental authority everywhere is openly promoting, extolling, uh, lifting up, and then quote-unquote legalizing uh, depravity uh, and, and so-called alternative lifestyles from open homosexuality uh, to so-called same-sex marriage, to the LBGTQXYZ, LMNOP plus uh, lifestyles, right? And then there's also an open uh, assault and perversion and sexualization of our children uh, that uh, is promoted through so-called transgenderism and every other kind of evil imaginable and unimaginable under the sun. And not only that, human governments around the world, including ours, are actively promoting all of this, actively promoting all of this and then actively promoting the encouragement of the, innocent, uh, of the murder of the innocent children in the womb, uh, which of course is just abject wickedness. Abortion is not a choice, it's evil, right? A- abortion is murder, it's wickedness. And again, in our country and around the world, uh, governments are attempting to divide children away from their parents. They're trying to do irreversible physical damage, psychological harm to children through the promotion again of of uh, surgical uh, mutilation of young children's bodies that are confused over uh, their gender. And and again, the whole thing is nothing more than just outrightly demonic. Uh, The attack on our children is great from, again, their murder to their uh, mutilation to the loss of their innocence to intentional sexualization of our our children, the intentional indoctrination of our uh, our children as an attempt to pervert their minds in the classrooms and in our libraries across this country. And then we have a government, again, that promotes all of this kind of, of wickedness, uh, a government that, that actively makes laws to make the insane feel normal and that actively makes laws to punish those who can see reality. And since the whole world lies again in the power of the evil one, Satan and his e- evil kingdom promotes lies all the time whenever it speaks, 
uh, 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 the one whose nature, Satan, one whose nature is a, a murderer and the father of lies, he does everything he can to destroy humanity and human governments, ours included, all around the world fall right in line with his agenda. So we live really in a time much as Isaiah did uh, that he described in the fifth chapter, the 20th verse of that book, where the world calls that which is evil good and good evil, where the world substitutes darkness for light and light for darkness and substitutes bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In the evil kingdom uh, that we are a part of, at least around us, uh, everything's upside down. Everything's upside down, everything's inside out. Again, that's the culture that we're a part of. And that culture is under the active wrath of the abandonment of God, where God has given us over to our depravity, to our, to our sins. Again, depraved minds rule everywhere. So we're living in a times of a tremendous cultural upheaval where men have rejected uh, the Word of God. And when men reject the truth of the Word of God, nothing else remains except lies. And that's the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of darkness is seemingly growing stronger. Now, the kingdom of men, which is part of this kingdom of darkness, is also pressing in more and more upon us on an individual level and then also upon the church collectively. And again, civil government is promoting all of these kinds of things and punishing any kind of opposition uh, to these things. Uh, we just witnessed over the last couple of years uh, the encroachment of government into the realm of the church during the COVID-19 era, uh, where the government was trying to exercise authority in a realm that re was really not theirs to exercise, trying to lock down churches, trying to keep people away from fellowships, jailing those who would not follow or obey or promote uh, the government's uh, agenda, or those who spoke against uh, governmental mandates. And, and again, as Christians, we realize that we are citizens of two kingdoms, really, as believers. We're citizens of the kingdom of God and part of the citizenry of the kingdom of men. We want to do everything we can to be the very best citizens we can as believers amongst uh, the kingdom of men. But we, and we want to honor earthly kings, but above all, we want to honor the king of kings, right? Uh, above all earthly powers, we want to honor the king of kings in, in our time here on the earth. So what is our response to government? What's our biblical response to government? What's the biblical role of government? Uh, how are we to live under an ever-increasing secular government that will not and does not acknowledge God? And is there ever a time when civil government should not be obeyed? Or do we just blindly obey everything civil government uh, tells us to do? And what do we do next time? What do we do when government next time comes and begins to again encroach upon the church and attempts to take away our rights and to oppose, impose upon us uh, unbiblical standards, right? How do, how do we react to that? So these are the kind of issues that we're trying to address, trying to think through. Uh, we want to attempt to answer again biblically from our study here in the book of Romans and other passages uh, we'll look at this evening. So there's a lot to consider, and I've done my best. I know I'm going really slow, but I've done my best to try to lay out the foundational principles that we just have to hold on to, because again, we want to submit to human authority because God has requested us to do so. We would like to be obedient, but then again, we need to understand what the biblical lines are that have been drawn with civil government and understand our biblical responsibility before God and then understand how God intended human government to function and then God's intended use of, of that authority that he has given to human government. And we want to understand biblically, again, how we relate to that. How do we relate to authority over top of us? And again, we've been working through these issues for some time. Now, we've seen in verse 1 the very foundational principle to understand this, and that is that all authority comes from God. 
All authority comes from God. Foundational principle. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So again, God is the ultimate authority in the universe, the ultimate power. All authority belongs to him, and every earthly ruler has a delegated authority from God himself. And everyone needs to realize that. All human rulers have a delegated authority from God himself, and everybody, both earthly rulers and subjects, need to understand that. And the fact is that everyone needs to understand is that Christ is over all. Christ is above all earthly powers. The truth is, listen, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's not just something we say on Sunday in the church. That's a reality. Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no higher power, no higher authority than him. And every man in the world, no matter who they are, owes their allegiance to Christ. And men need to understand that. Because one day men are going to stand and give an account for how they have responded to Christ and how they have used that delegated authority that God has given to them. Now we saw last time that every person in the universe, with the exception of God himself, is under some kind of authority. All men are under the authority of God. Uh, There's an authority in the home, there's an authority in the church, an authority at work, and then there's an authority over our society. So every person, without exception or with the exception of God, is under some kind of authority. And the text is very simply says, let every person, every soul be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So again, in subjection, being in subjection, I told you, means to line up under. In reality, it's a demonstration of a heart attitude that understands that authority comes from God. God is the king. He's the Lord of the universe. He's commanded us to line up under human authority over us because all authority has been established by him. So when we have a heart attitude that is in subjection to government, we realize again that God is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. God is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. And we trust God in his sovereign judgment to accomplish his will, whomever may be in a position of earthly power and authority above us. And again, it's a heart attitude of subjection to authority that allows us to place our focus on God and not upon human rulers who are fallen. How much time do we waste spending our attention, focusing our attention on this human ruler or that human ruler who we can't stand who's fallen, right? We need to look up and see that God is sovereign over the affairs of men, even fallen human rulers uh, above us. So now last time we went through seven reasons uh, why, from this text, seven reasons why we're to subject ourselves to human authorities. I don't know, I I don't need to go into the detail again on that, but just biblically from the text as we just really very quickly read through it, the the reasons that we are to submit to human government. Let me give you the first three. Because human governments are deigned by God or government is uh, by divine decree. Number two, resistance to human government is rebellion against God. And number three, those who resist human authority or human government are going to be punished. Now just look at the text. Let every person be in subjection. You'll see all these. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they will have... Uh, they will have Uh, they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Verse 3 says, uh, for rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you 
want to have no fear of authority, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a ministry of God for your good. So human governments are ordained by God to resist government is uh, uh, to rebellion against God. Whoever resists human authority is really is going to face punishment. And the next two reasons here that we are to submit to human government is because government serves to restrain evil. Rulers are no cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Government serves to restrain evil, and government serves the purpose of promoting good. That's number four and five on the list. And number four and five on the list are really the true function of government as ordained by God, the restraint of evil and the promotion of good. And again, that's really the biblical limits on government in its role. And we'll look at that more in just a moment. A sixth reason from this text why we are to, as Christians, subject ourselves or submit ourselves to human government is the government has the right to bear the sword. That means to inflict punishment, even capital punishment, on those who break its law. Verse 4 continues, If you do what is evil, be afraid, uh, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Then the seventh reason we as believers are to submit ourselves or subject ourselves to human authority is for the sake of our own conscience. Verse 5 says, Wherefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, you fear the wrath of the government, but also for conscience sake. You want to do the right thing. So again, the issue of authority for human rulers as a believer in Christ is one of a hard attitude. doesn't matter if we have a good ruler or a wicked ruler. We'd prefer a good ruler. I got that part. But it really doesn't matter because the issue is that proper heart attitude towards authority acknowledges that God himself is the one who's in absolute control. God, God is in control. God is in charge. And God works for his glory he works out all things for his glory and for the best of his people. And, and we can rest in that. We can rest in that fact. He's powerful enough, sovereign enough to accomplish his absolute uh, perfect will, no matter what human ruler is in a position of power and authority. So again, biblical submission doesn't necessarily mean we always blindly obey, because I told you there's a difference between obedience and submission. Obedience deals with performance. Submission deals with the attitude of your heart. There may indeed be times that you cannot obey authority over you. But even then, that refusal to obey authority over you must be with a heart attitude that respects the office of, that, of, the, of which that person holds. It's with a heart attitude that respects the office that person uh, an authority holds. Now, I think for the most part, when COVID-19 came along, the attitude of much of the church at that time is that people were taught this old adage that says, obey government at all times unless government commands you to sin. You've heard that, right? It just you, you obey the government at all times unless it commands you to sin, right? But I think what we found out during the time of the COVID-19 era, we found out that that old adage was really woefully inadequate. And it really gives government a level of deference that belongs only to God himself. And interestingly enough, that, that adage of, of obey government at all times unless it commands you, to, commands you to sin, that really historically has not been the view that Christians have taken towards government. Jesse Johnson, in a very helpful book, I, I'd encourage you to pick it up and take a look at it, but Jesse Johnson, in a very helpful book entitled City of Man, Kingdom of God, and it's subtitled uh, Why Christians Respect, Obey, and Resist Government, says this. He says, for obvious reasons, that view of government 
is, uh, that has, is what has been favored by governments itself. Political leaders like to think themselves of being owed absolute obedience. And in their mind, the escape clause, except in the case of sin, is meaningless. After all, they supposedly want only what is good for us and ostensibly would never command us to do something evil. He goes on and says, Lutherans and Catholics have generally embraced that view of submission because they've often been well-connected politically. When the emperor is appointed, uh, appointed by the pope, complete obedience to that government is required. He continues and asks this question. But what about when the king has declared himself to be the head of the church? This is exactly what happened in England during the English Reformation of the 16th and 17th centuries. Henry VIII broke with Rome and assumed control of the church in England. Soon it became renamed the Church of England. Subsequent British monarchs would insist that only pastors ordained and licensed by the crown were permitted to preach in the churches. At the heights of the persecution, the government even dictated the, the church liturgy and included what passages could be preached on and what topics could be uh, covered in prayer. Many pastors, he says, opened, opposed these restrictions. Some like John Bunyan were imprisoned and others like Samuel Rutherford were condemned to death for their opposition. In 1662, some 2,000 pastors resigned their ministry rather than submitting to the laws that regulated church worship. Many took uh, to preaching outdoors in the fields and plazas uh, which uh, led to the Five Mile Act uh, law, uh, a law in 1665 that banned preaching from uh, preachers from living within five miles of the place that they had formerly preached. He goes on, the inadequacy of obey government at all times unless it commands you to sin should be obvious. Is it sinful to live five miles away? Is it sinful to preach on certain passages on certain days? He says, of course not. But framing the issue in those terms misses the largest and more significant question entirely. The right question that needs to be asked is, does the government have the authority to regulate church worship? Today's American churches, he says, seems to have landed uh, with the Lutherans and the Catholics, and COVID-19 exposed this reality. Pastors, elders, entire congregations struggled to come to terms with how to respond with government that had shattered their churches, that had shuttered their churches. We lack the theological chops, is the word he used. Um, it just means the theological wisdom, the depth, uh, to understand what was happening. And obey the government at all times unless it commands you to sin was revealed to be woefully inadequate as a grid. Right? That's a great statement. That's very helpful. It's, it's great insight on the issue issues for us to consider. What exactly is the authority that God has given to human government? And again, are there biblical reasons why we may at times refuse to obey human authorities over us? And if there are, what are they? Well, there are reasons. There are, there are um, reasons for not obeying human government. They kind of fall into three broad categories. I'll give them to you. We'll go back over them again, so don't worry about it. You'll, you'll get it. Number one, when government commands what God forbids, when government commands what God forbids. Number two, general category, when government forbids what God commands. And then when government commands what's not theirs to, what's not theirs to command. Now, either infringing on areas related to the function of the church, which is not the government's role or rule, or when government overreaches in its God-ordained purposes, to check evil and to promote the common good. 
So let's go through these categories and kind of uh, think about them. Um, when is it proper to disobey governing authorities? And again, general category number one, when government commands what's, uh, what, what God forbids, or again, or when government uh, orders us to do that which is wrong. And I'll give you a few examples, and then we'll look at some passages. Think all the way back in Genesis chapter 39, right? You have, you have the, the wife of Joseph's uh, uh, master ordered Joseph to commit fornication with her. And, 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 right? and, and Joseph rightly refused, because for him to comply would be to sin against God, and he didn't want to do that. Other example in the, in the Old Testament, when uh, Pharaoh in Egypt ordered the killing of the uh, Israelites' uh, babies uh, uh, by the Jewish midwives, the midwives involved in the biblical text in Exodus chapter 1, Sifra and Puah, knew that murder was wrong. Therefore, they refused to comply with the monarch's decrees. Exodus 1.17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So these two women were faithful to the Lord's command not to murder, and he affirmed, God affirmed their civil disobedience. Exodus 1 verse 20, he dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew mightily. The, the king of Jericho orders Rahab to give up the two Israelite spies who come into her house, and Rahab feared the Lord more than the king, so she refused to reveal where the spies were hiding, Joshua 2, verses 2 through 7. See the same thing in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 20, when Jonathan refused to obey his father Samuel the king's command to murder David. And then when Saul commanded the servants to kill, or his servants to kill the priests of the Lord, they also refused to do what the king commanded, 1 Samuel 22, verse 17. Now, obviously, in the New Testament, you could think of some examples. For, for, for instance, uh, Herod orders the Magi to return to him so he, they can disclose to him the location of the baby Jesus. But instead, after being warned by God in a dream, they don't, do not obey that command. They go home by a different route. That's Matthew uh, chapter 2, 8 through 12. And at the end of time, during the time of the tribulation in the future, the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to order people who are living during that time to take the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is going to be required to buy and sell and engage in commerce. But true believers are going to refuse to do that. That's Revelation 13. And in the history of the church, you can also think early church, first and second centuries. You can think of different Christian martyrs who served, again, as prominent examples from their uh, testimony of the resolute obedience to God. Polycarp, for example, uh, 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 dies in 155 AD. He defies the Roman government when he's uh, told to renounce Christ, and he responds with a famous statement. You've probably heard it before. It says, 86 years have I served him, and he's never did me any uh, injury. How could I blaspheme my Savior and my King, upon which they burned him alive at the stake? And some uh, uh, renderings of that historical uh, facts say that he didn't die completely there at the stake. The fire didn't consume him, and so uh, they jumped upon him and stabbed him to death. Okay? 155 AD. Now, in the book of Daniel, there are three significant accounts of justifiable disobedience against human government, human authority. So I want to spend a little bit of time and, and look at those. So turn to the book of Daniel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. 
Daniel. The first account in the book of Daniel of justifiable disobedience to governing authorities is when Daniel and his three Jewish countrymen, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are young men, they're exiles in a foreign land, were ordered by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to eat the daily provisions of the king, the delicacies of wine which he drank. It says that in Daniel 1.5. So the chief of the officials, uh, he's a man named Aspenaz. Uh, he's ordered to carry this out, and yet these young men are going to politely decline to do so. Otherwise, they would feel like they are defiling themselves by breaking the Mosaic dietary laws. Daniel 1 verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Verse 9. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, uh, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are of your own age? When, uh, then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. Now, in instead of demanding <clears throat> or protesting or picketing or putting down the government authorities uh, who are over them, Daniel just graciously presents an alternative to the, to the king's official. Verse 11, Daniel 1, verse 11. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and, appearance, and the appearance of the youth who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to to what you see. Verse 14, so he listened to them and this matter and tested them for 10 days and at the end of 10 days their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. So basically, Daniel says, Aspenaz, we'd like to obey you, I mean, but we just can't. We can't violate our conscience. We can't violate the command of our of our God. We respect you. We want to submit to your authority. Uh, but we have to obey our God over, over men. Uh, we're not going to eat the king's choice food. And you can do to us according as you see fit if we're ill in appearance. But again, it's with an attitude of graciousness and, and humility and uh, realizing again that authority comes from God. Realizing that God is the, is the sovereign over the affairs of men. Uh, even when men, these young men have been taken captive and, and, and uh, uh, deported to a foreign country. Realizing again, there's no authority except from God. And the authority over us, whoever they might be or whoever it might be, uh, is not acting their own, but they're really acting instruments in the hands of God for again, he alone is sovereign. And Daniel couldn't obey the king's command. Right? Therefore, he gave another solution to the problem which God in his kindness graciously grants favor uh, of Ashpenaz, the, the king's official, to these men. It's another part of the story. It's not in my notes, so I'll try not to run too far. But just think, why are these young men in that nation? Because God has a plan. Evil men are doing what they're doing, but these young men are in that nation in Babylon, and they're the ones, Daniel is going to be the one who lives a faithful life, 
and he's going to be the one who becomes the head of the, I've told you this story, right? He becomes the head of the magi, the magicians, right, in, in the kingdom. Who are the ones who come from the east at the time of the birth of Christ? It's the magi. They come from the east. Why? Because in their history, this faithful man, Daniel, had told them that there's a God in heaven. He's going to send his son someday into the world who's the savior of all men. And they were looking for the coming arrival of the Messiah. And, and that's the, the witness of Daniel in that country. Again, he's a young man. I, I just find the whole story of Daniel fascinating. You know, he, he's a young man. These young men made up their mind in advance before they got in this position who they were going to obey. Go to chapter 3 of this book, Daniel chapter 3. <clears throat> Here's the, the second story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has made a golden image. You're familiar with it. He orders everybody to worship the golden image. Daniel 3 verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast in the, fire, in the midst of the furnace of a blazing fire. But again, Daniel and his three friends had already made up their minds that they're not going to do that. They're not going to worship false gods. They're not going to eat food that's contrary to what God commands them to eat. And they're certainly not going to uh, worship false gods. They're going to obey God rather than men. They would not violate what God had commanded them uh, not to do. God had commanded them not to worship false idols. And, and they're going to do what God had commanded, and that is to worship God and worship Him alone. Daniel 3, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, again, their uh, names given by their captors. And these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, It is true, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve the gods. My gods are worship the golden image uh, that I have set up. Verse 15. Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, all kinds of Music, fall down and worship the image that I've made up very well. But if you do not worship immediately, right? This is like parents with their kids going one, two, three, right? Isn't it? You see how ridiculous that is. You see how ridiculous that is. I'm going to give you one more chance, okay? I really mean it this time, right? If you will not worship, if you, you will be immediately cast in the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? You know, we, we don't <laughs> talk about any of the other people that were in that plane that bowed down to the image. Right? Thousands of years later, we're talking about this one man, this one man that did what? Stood. Heard an old black preacher one time uh, say something along the lines of, don't be bowing when it's standing time. Right? And it's standing time. Right? We're, we're not doing this. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. They could not obey the command of the king. They were respectful. They're willing to die at the hands of men rather than disobey their Lord and their God. So when is it right to disobey those in authority over us 
when they ask us to violate the clear command of God, when they ask us to do something we know is wrong that God does not want us to do. Now, of course, the third example is over in chapter 6 here of the book uh, of, uh, of righteous disobedience uh, to authority. And the book of Daniel, it's well known against Daniel in the lion's den. I won't go into all of it, but uh, he submitted himself to possible death uh, in the jaws of lions rather than to obey King Darius. He's the guy who's in charge now. Uh, some mischievous guys in the background said, oh, you know, you're so great, enact a law that nobody can pray or worship anybody but you, right? And rather than obeying Darius's decree that kept him from worshiping the true God, he just said, look, I'm going to take the consequences of whatever they are, right? So God honored the wisdom and discernment of his servant Daniel, who just faithfully adheres to the truth rather than obeying this royal edict. And he does it, does it with dignity, does it with respect. That's verses 21, 20, 23 in Daniel chapter 6. And I think what's especially uh, powerful with regard to Daniel in this particular instance is, is the injunction not to pray to anyone other than Darius was only temporary. It was only a 30-day law. So listen, Daniel could have complied knowing that the law was going to be done away with in 30 days. And Daniel could have prayed silently, but look at Daniel 6, verse 10. Now, Daniel, when he knew that the document was signed, this edict, entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had a window open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day and praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been previously doing. So when is it right to disobey authority over us when government commands what's, uh, what God forbids? You know, you got rules, you got a lion's den, I got that. But I'm going to do what God has asked me to do. Why? Because God is sovereign over the nations. We have got to stop looking at people and circumstances, and we have to look up. Because again, as finite individuals, we don't always understand exactly what God's doing. He doesn't have to tell us. But he's the one who's in control of rising up nations and taking down nations. He's the one that's in control of our life, how long we live. He's in charge. We need to look at him and just do our best as finite individuals to honor him in everything that we do. Second broad category, uh, when uh, is it right to uh, uh, disobey those in authority over us? When government forbids what God commands. When government forbids what God commands. So that's found in the New Testament, the book of Acts. So turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4. <clears throat> Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they'd gone up to the temple to worship. They encountered a certain layman who they had healed. And after the people saw this lame man who's now walking and leaping and praising God, attention is drawn to Peter and and he begins preaching Christ and saying Christ is the one who's responsible for making this man who was lame now whole. He told about Christ being the prince of life and about God raising up this person who was dead. And he told these men that everyone should repent from their sin and turn to Christ. Now the priests, they hear this, and they come along with the, the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, and when they heard what Peter was saying, they put their hands on Peter and John and, 
and they uh, are going to throw them into jail. So the next morning, the Sanhedrin, again, the Jewish Supreme Court, uh, if you will, they examine these men, or these men are going to be examined by them, uh, by them, the rulers, uh, and, and they're going to give an answer for the power. What power was it they used to heal this man? And Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit and begins answering and speaking about the person of Christ, saying Christ is the one who's responsible for doing this. Word of man, it's Christ is the one who did this, who healed this man. Right? And then he charges them, rightly so, with killing Christ. And then they, he proclaims that God raised him from the dead. And he tells again that there's salvation in no one else except uh, uh, under heaven, uh, no other name under heaven given amongst men except uh, uh, the man uh, Jesus Christ. Now the rulers hear these untrained, uneducated men give this answer. They don't like what they hear. Uh, uh, they know, look, this is not going to be good for us on a business level. Uh, it's not going to help us out on our personal cause and our little religious system we got going on here. So for their own personal religious issues, they ask the question, what shall we do? Look at Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 16. <laughs> what shall we do with these men? Next words. For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But, right? I mean, everybody knows it. We know it too. These guys have worked a miracle here. But, verse 17, in order that it may not spread any further, because we certainly wouldn't want the truth to spread, that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. And when they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have heard and seen or seen and heard. We cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 28. Again, Peter has a little run-in with the council. The high priest questions him, chapter 5, verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and instead you uh, in, intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter, verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. So when is it right to disobey those in authority over us? Number one, when government commands what God forbids. Number two, when government forbids what God commands. When, God, when, when government forbids what God commands. Again, Peter and John are confronted by the Jewish leaders and were given strict orders not to speak about Jesus Christ, but God had commanded them to speak about Jesus Christ. So what do they do? Protest? Start a petition? Start a rebellion? No. They make a choice. They're going to subject themselves to authority. They're going to be respectful. They're going to give honor in, in a proper tone with a correct heart attitude. They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, but we can't stop speaking about Christ. We must obey God rather than men. And in essence, it's implied, but we're willing to submit ourselves, subject ourselves to whatever judgment you want to render. That's, that's biblical submission. We recognize the ruler over us, and, we, and, and again, 
It's not, you don't have any authority. No, we recognize that the ruler has authority. And yet there are certain instances that come where we just say, look, we just can't obey it. We just can't. What you're asking us to do is to disobey God, who is our higher authority, the ultimate authority. We must obey God rather than men. So again, when is it proper to disobey governing authorities? Number one, when government commands what God forbids, like murder male children and worship an idol. Or number two, when government forbids what God commands. Again, stop talking about Jesus. Or think about other uh, examples in, in church history. Think about the early church that was forbidden to worship uh, Christ and, and whose members, when they refused to stop meeting, they hid in, in the catacombs and met undergrounds, etc. and so forth. And when they were caught, they were taken out to the arena and either fed to the lions or some other wild beasts or they met a gladiator or perhaps they're even burned. And believers today <clears throat> and throughout all, all of uh, the history of the church have faced the same kind of persecution from their government. Stop meeting in the name of Jesus, but they meet anyway. William Tyndale refused the government uh, authorities over him from translating the Bible. He refused. He just kept translating it. John Bunyan refused to stop preaching. He just kept pre preaching. You know, they put him in jail. <clears throat> they put a little piece of paper outside his jail and said, all you got to do is sign this. And once you sign it, it says, you'll stop preaching. We'll let you out. He said in the, it's in the margins. It's kind of way out there. But he said, pound sand. Right? He, he didn't sign it. <clears throat> He's got a wife and kids, and my understanding is one of his kids was special need. I think she was blind, or he was blind. Can't. Who was John Bunyan's cellmate? Answer, no clue. No clue. We only remember people in history who take a stand for the truth and take their stand on the side of God. Now, not everybody's got a great story like that, but th those are the people that we think back uh, about. Tyndale, Bunyan, missionaries past and present who, who are in closed countries who refuse to stop evangelizing because that's what God's called them to do. Now, obviously, in, in, in such cases, the, uh, the faithfulness to Christ uh, being the most important principle, in many of these cases throughout history, faithfulness to Christ comes at great personal cost in the form of persecution, in, in the form of suffering. But obedience to the King of Kings has to be above all earthly obedience. Uh, obedience to the King of Kings must be above all obedience and submission to earthly powers. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. That's reality biblically. If God, oh, I mean, I'm not signing up to be martyred, but if God wants us to be martyred, that's his business, not ours. We just need to give faithful testimony and not try to manipulate the outcome or the circumstances or, or try to find an escape clause that's really not there. We just need to be faithful in the moment. Because again, we don't know how God is moving in the affairs of men. We know the general overall direction. We understand the general story, the exaltation of Christ in eternity past, the exaltation of Christ in time, the exaltation of Christ in eternity future and we're just part of that little story someplace we just take we just get up every day and go lord i just want to honor you today just help me in my little i mean I, i'm not even a gnat uh, on the size of the earth but just help me in my little world honor you and that's what christians do that's what christians have always done faithfulness to christ now in, in general for the most part christians ought to obey authority over them right because again those authorities are from god 
However, when we're put in a position by governing authorities, either to do that which God forbids or, or, or forbids us to do what God commands, then we have to be willing to follow God, obey God rather than men, and then live with the consequences. Right? We, we, when we choose to disobey governing authorities, we do it respectfully, we do it with the right heart attitude, and we're ready and prepared to suffer the consequences of the penalty that may result from our civil disobedience. Then lastly, the last category of when it's proper to disobey governing authorities, number three, is when government commands what is not theirs to command. When government commands what is not theirs to command. The fact that, uh, the fact that while we are subject to subject ourselves to the government, there are limitations on government's authority. There are limitations on government's authority biblically. And what we need to realize within the authority that God has given to men within humanity, there are really three realms of government, three realms of authority, three spheres of authority, if you want. One is within the family, one is within the church, and the third one is within the state. Within the family, the church, and the state. And in each of those situations, uh, some people refer, refer to it as spheres of authority. Every person's jurisdiction in that different sphere has to be respected. For example, the father has authority that is limited to his own family, not someone else's family. It's sphere authority in his own family. The father has authority that is limited to his own family, not somebody else's. Within the church, the sphere of authority that God has given, that God has delegated to elders and pastors and shepherds, is that congregation. Not somebody else's congregation. That congregation. And it's only delegated authority by Christ that is limited to church issues, church matters, living godly under the sun. There are some quote-unquote churches that say, let me see your bank records and see how you're spending your money. That's not a church. That's a cult. You don't have that kind of authority. The church doesn't have that authority. It's not been vested to the elders to, to do that. It's within the realm of what matters in the church. And third, God has given a delegated authority again to civil government. And the task of civil government is to protect the peace and promote the welfare of, of the people. So each sphere of authority has its own lane to stay in, if you will. And when one realm of authority or one sphere of authority exceeds the bounds of their jurisdiction, it is the duty of the other realms of authority to inform them of that. God has not granted civil government authority over the doctrine and practice or the polity of the church. Government authorities have no right to interfere with ecclesiastical matters in a way that uh, uh, undermines or disregards God's given authority again to pastors and elders. And God has not granted civil government authority to meddle in the affairs of the family and to override parental authority, just like the church doesn't have authority to meddle in the affairs of the family and override parental authority. The fact that God has not given civil government authority to meddle in the affairs of the family and override parental authority doesn't stop human government from meddling in the affairs of the family. And you already know this, but this is a huge battlefield going on right now, and it's going to get bigger. The government intruding into the family, into that realm of authority. 
And again, when any one of these institutions exceeds the bounds of their jurisdiction, it is the duty of other institutions uh, under uh, God's authority to curtail that overreach, to inform them that they are out of their lane, they're out of bounds. So again, thinking back to the COVID days, uh, when the government officials issued orders to regulate worship, such as bans on singing, bans on attendance, prohibiting gathering together in close proximity and services, they really stepped out of bounds of their legitimate God-ordained role of authority. And they needed to be corrected and informed of that. For civil government to put restrictions upon matters of worship, matters of attendance, again, is outside their lane, outside of the sphere of authority that God has granted to them. Because the command of the Scripture for God, for His people, is to meet. Not forsaking your own assembly is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, Hebrews 10, 25. God commands His people to worship and to worship Him through singing. You see that in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. The command to fellowship uh, is uh, one that is given that you practice the one and others, and to practice the one and others, you have to be in close proximity, Acts chapter 6, Galatians 2, and so on. Now, the government at the time, the argument was that they are only trying to protect people's health, and that argument, again, that they're only trying to protect people's health is outside of their God-given realm of authority. Government's authority, human government's authority, civil government's authority, is not to protect their health. But government's authority is really, uh, uh, is really to protect our rights, to protect our God-given, God-given inalienable rights. Again, protecting our health is not really within their jurisdiction. It's a fallen world. People get sick. How, how long we live, the status of our health, that's God's realm, not civil government. And again, God has commanded us as his people to gather together physically to do so and to worship him. And for those people who object, even when God's command to gather together, saying that it is unloving to do so, right? Because you might kill grandma or something. I would challenge that line of thinking and say that it's more loving to gather than to not gather. It's more loving to, to gather and meet in obedience so that Christ might be honored. God's people might be uh, encouraged Christ worship publicly, that people might be able to come and sit under the teaching of the Word of God and receive the truth of the Word of God, receive the gospel. That was one of the things we thought through when we were going through this whole issue and trying to figure the whole thing out. It's like if we close and whoever walks by can't come in the building, we're opening this thing up. We want people to have an opportunity to hear the truth if they want to come hear the truth, not be in fear. So when the government comes and tries to limit our our attendance or suspend the church's gathering altogether. And you can meet at Home Depot, but you can't come to church, right? Remember? You can go to the abortion clinic, you can go to the marijuana dispensary, but you can't gather in the fellowship. We as God's people, pastors, elders especially, needed to respectfully inform them that they're outside their lane. They've exceeded their legitimate jurisdiction. And our faithfulness to Christ prohibits us from observing the restrictions they want to impose upon the corporate worship service. Therefore, with all due respect, the answer to government authorities should have been, we will not comply. And for a lot of churches, they eventually got there, but it took some time to get there. Some churches have never got there. 
And I'm not trying to Monday, Monday morning quarterback the whole thing, but I think it's a, it's a close historical example to remember what happened in the past. Because I think, and the recent past, because I think the COVID-19 era presented the church with some very difficult issues it had not had to deal with for hundreds of years, especially here in the West. Because most people at the time just blindly accepted, obey government at all times unless it commands you to sin. But again, we saw that that's a woefully inadequate grid to see the issue through. And listen, I'm not really concerned about the past. What I am concerned about is what's coming in the future. I'm concerned about what's coming in the future and how we think through these issues because this whole situation may come back again in the very near future. And that's why I'm taking so much time to go through this. That's why I'm going through so, so, so slow. I want us to be reminded. I want us to understand the principles. I want us to think clearly when something again comes, how do we respond as believers to government? And again, to address that issue, again, we need to go back and ask the question, what is the fundamental purpose of government? Now, we've already acknowledged the fact that all power belongs to God and all authority is delegated authority. But what is the fundamental purpose of human government? And to answer that question, go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26. This is what's known as the kingdom mandate. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates man in his image and his likeness and God gives to man certain inalienable rights. That just means rights that cannot be taken away because it's God who gives these rights to men. It's the God who gives life to men. Right? Life in itself is given two men by God. It is an inalienable right to life that God has given to men and it cannot be taken away until he chooses to take it away. So God himself gave to men unique responsibilities to exercise dominion over the earth, to rule it, to subdue it, authority over the earth. The responsibility in that rule is to work, right? The responsibility in that rule is to work in order to subdue the earth. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Look, work is not part of the curse. The fall doesn't come until chapter 3. So this is before the fall. Man, men have an inalienable right given to them by God to work. And again, the command of God is to be fruitful and multiply, to procreate. He's given man the right to have companionship. He, God has given man uh, the right to have a family, the right to be with family. And implied in that command to uh, rule and subdue the earth and to have dominion over it is the right to acquire property. 
own property, to own possessions. These are God-given rights. These are inalienable rights that God gives to men. Now, what does man need to promote these or to protect these inalienable rights? What does man need to protect these inalienable rights? What does man need to rule over the earth, to exercise dominion, especially in a fallen world? James Coates has a great answer and a great sermon. I, uh, I encourage you to listen to it. It's called Directing Government to Its Duty. What man needs is government that is in place that protects those inalienable rights. Man needs a government in a fallen world that protects those inalienable rights, those God-given rights, especially in this fallen world. So the biblical purpose for government is to facilitate mankind, mankind's uh, exercising his dominion over the earth. Government fundamentally exists to make sure that we can fulfill our mission to subdue the earth, work, worship, be fruitful, and multiply, etc. Government is the ordained institution that God has put in place to assure that law and order is established. The law and order uh, governs. Uh, again, to protect these God-given rights, God-given authority to government, it's vital for man to fulfill uh, the God-given mission in a fallen world. And again, you get the idea of government uh, uh, that's played out in the relationship to man and murder. Just turn over to chapter 9. To chapter 9. Genesis 9.6. It says, Whoever shed man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made him. So again, in that verse, it implies the idea of government. There are rulers in place to subdue evil, and somebody is in charge of carrying out the punishment for the crime of murder. Again, that implies government. The death penalty is in place for murder, capital punishment. The death penalty for murder is God's law. It's, again, um, Genesis 9-6 is not talking about uh, pers taking personal vengeance. It's not talking about uh, anything, you know, eye for not or, or uh, any kind of a you know, turn the other cheek type of thing. No, this is about human society. This is government. This is ruling authorities making sure that they are carrying out the penalty, uh, God's penalty for murder, uh, which is uh, 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 capital punishment. This is again Romans thirteen four. If you do what is evil, be afraid, for governing authorities do not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So God has given the, the sword, the ruling authority, uh, the instrument of death, because they are an avenger of God who brings wrath upon those who practice evil. Capital punishment implies government. Government is a minister of God. Government's chief responsibility to protect the inalienable rights that God has given to men to punish evil and promote good. Now, Coates has this tremendously great little statement here in that sermon he says now fundamentally what is this protecting I'm talking about capital punishment what is this protecting if government is to institute exercise implement the death penalty against someone who commits murder what does that protect you might be thinking he says well that protects life well it does but not the life of the one who's murdered the one who's murdered is already dead so it's not protecting them but what does a law like this provide? What is it? it is to, that, but what it does provide, a law that is to protect and restrain murder from taking place, this is primarily not protecting life. 
What is it protecting? He says it's protecting the rights to life. It's protecting the right to live. Another human being does not have the right to take the rights of another individual through murder. He says, see, that is really critical. If you believe government has the responsibility to protect life, then you are like buttoning up the shirt with the wrong button, and you're going to get the whole thing wrong. Government's responsibility is to protect rights, of which life is only one. Government has the responsibility of upholding all the inalienable rights given to men by God. And again, the death penalty functions to prevent murder, which in turn protects a person's God-given right to life, at least until God takes it away. And that's a great statement. Government is in place by God to protect our God-given inalienable rights. Murder, obviously, or the right to life is one of those things. We can't, we can't uh, uh, carry out the commission that God has given to us to worship Him, to work, to exercise, to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it, to enjoy life. If you're dead, <laughs> right? Can't carry out the command. Enjoy your family, provide for them. Those are inalienable rights that God gives, the right to work. Government's purpose is to protect our rights in order that we can accomplish the mission that God has given to us. Again, government under God's authority is to be a minister of God for good and the restraint of evil. Coates goes on and says, government doesn't grant these rights. Government is obligated by God to recognize these rights. Government does not impart these things. They're already ours by, by God. Government must recognize them. When government begins to get the, in the way of man accomplishing his God-given mission, then it is no longer functioning as God intended. And again, that's another tremendously helpful statement. When, when government begins to get in the way of man accomplishing God's given mission, it's no longer functioning as God intended. Government is a minister of God. That means that the government is a deacon, a servant of God, to carry out God's ordained purposes. Government, nor government authorities, are autonomous. That means they can't just do whatever they want. Again, even governing authorities, even rulers, are accountable to God. They've been placed in that position with a delegated authority by God himself. Therefore, they're responsible to God. They're accountable to him. Now go back to the book of Romans. Let me kind of clean this whole thing up. Back to Romans 13. Verse 3 again. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Verse 4, for it is a minister of God for your good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Now, if government was to act in a God-ordained role as a minister for good to ensure that our God-given rights are protected, in general, we're not going to have a problem with the government if it does what God has asked them to do. Right? Because it is, again, when it's doing what God asks the government to do, it's facilitating our God-given mission in life, allowing us to exercise dominion over the earth, pursue employment, make provision for your family, enjoy your family, have companionship, worship God, serve God, etc., and so forth. If they allow us to do that, then we'll probably praise government because it's uh, within the lanes, so to speak, as God has ordained it. 
if government, if government goes outside of its God-ordained role, as a uh, one that praises good and avenges evil, then, then we're not going to delight in that government, right? But look again what it says here in uh, verse 4. For, men, for it, government, authority, right, is a minister of God for your good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. Well, the question on the table, obviously, is who defines what's good? Who defines what's evil? And obviously, in this passage and other passages, back in Genesis, etc., uh, it's God himself, right? God is the one who's the determiner of good. And he does that by, and determiner of what is evil, and he does it by his word. And he does it specifically in one fashion through the Ten Commandments. You see that back in the book of Exodus. And especially in the second half of the Ten Commandments. Uh, number six, you shall not murder. Uh, that, that's a, a command against premeditated murder uh, of another human being. And it touches on the inalienable God-given rights of what? Life. Right? You shall not commit adultery. It's a command against having sexual relationship with anybody who's not your spouse, which touches on the inalienable right of a family. Number eight, you shall not steal. That protects a person's inalienable rights to property, to possession. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, uh, as in lying. When you lie, that exposes your neighbor to liability in the court and maybe even death. And then the tenth one is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant or dox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So the command against desiring anything that's not your own, that coveting, because coveting uh, causes you to perhaps break one of the commandments that, that I just spoke of, maybe takes you into murder, adultery, etc., theft. If it's wrong to do something, most certainly it's wrong to what? Think something, to desire something that is, that, that is sinful. So who is the one who determines what is good and evil? Again, God does, and he does it through his law. In fact, look down at uh, the next verse, verse 8 of Romans 13. It says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For in this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. There's any other commandment that is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God determines good and evil. And the biblical role of government is to protect our God-given inalienable rights so that we can function within the purpose for why God has created us to promote good and then again government to promote good and put down evil. So again, I guess the question on the table a couple years ago is the government's responsibility to protect us from a virus. Many at the time said yes. Many probably would still say yes. Many certainly said yes during the time of COVID believing that it's government's responsibility to protect life. But if it's government's responsibility to protect life versus inalienable rights, then why does our government promote and enact laws that take away life of the unborn? Why does our government promote acts uh, and, and enact laws that pr promote or protect all kinds of sexual immorality and sexual perversion and deviations and deviancy of all kinds? And then again, the murder of children through abortion under all circumstances if the government really wants to protect life? Why does the government demand that you and I as taxpayers pay for a murder of unborn children anytime all the way up to an actual moment of birth and now there's some people in this country, some governors, uh, that are actually promoting beyond the time of birth what the dictionary defines as infanticide if government wants to protect life. If the role of government is to protect life, then I suggest it's not doing a very good job 
We murder somewhere between 800,000 to perhaps a million children alone in this country alone every year. And we do so under the banner of the so-called quote-unquote right to choose or the health care option of women without considering the health care of the, the baby that's going to end its life through uh, a suffering of, of abortion without considering the rights of the female child who's being boarded. I mean, it's just the depravity of man on display, the depraved mind. So again, was it the government's responsibility to protect us from the virus? Answer, no. We live in a fallen world. Viruses are a part of life in a fallen world. Government's responsibility is to protect our God-given rights. And if government's responsibility is to protect our, uh, again, is it government's responsibility to protect our health? Answer, no. God is the one who gives life. God is the one who takes away life. Government is not sovereign over the extent of our days God is. Somebody would say, because I said it at the time, some people still say, what was a pandemic? Well, the answer is, no, it's not even, wasn't even close to a pandemic. And again, even if it was, it's not government's role to save us from a virus. What the government should have done is given us all the information that we needed about the situation and let, let us act as adults and make decisions on what we felt was reasonable based on our own assessment of, of the circumstances and how comfortable we were at the risks uh, that were involved with the situation. Because we take risks each and every day. Did anybody in the room, can I just get a show of hands, did anybody happen to ride a, ride a horse here tonight? Did most of you ride, drive in a car? Right? There's certain risks inherent in getting in a car. But the risks, the benefits of riding in a car outweigh the risks. So you get in a car and don't even think about it. How about you just let us be adults? How about the reality is death looms everywhere in a fallen world. That's why everybody needs a Savior. And again, Jesus Christ is the only one who ever defeated death. We did not need to be treated like children and locked down during the COVID time. And what the government did when they imposed all those kind of lockdown measures is they actually infringed on our God-given inalienable rights. The right to work, the right to worship, the right to be with your family, the right to be with your family when they were dying, the right to life. Many people died during the government, due to the government lockdowns from fear, afraid to go to the hospital, afraid to go get routine uh, cancer checkups, afraid to go out because they're going to die of COVID. Others turned to suicide, despair, drugs, overdosing, children forced to stay at home, uh, and not at school, not learning, increased rates of uh, abuse amongst children. If somebody dies from COVID or any other kind of virus, any other kind of disease, it's not the government's fault. If somebody died from the COVID lockdowns or any kind of thing associated with the COVID lockdowns, then the government bears culpability for that. Because again, they're outside their God-ordained role, no longer functioning according to their God-given purposes because the harm that they've caused exceeds the situation and they're going to be held responsible and will give an account to God for what they've done. Now, again, most rulers don't believe that. It's irrelevant. It's reality. They're going to give account for what they've done. And again, when government steps in and performs any other role other than its God-ordained purpose to protect their God-given rights, then they're outside of their God-ordained lane. And again, you know, government doesn't exist in just one lane. It likes to drive between the lanes. It likes to take as much as it can. It likes to have a dominion where it has, uh, even places it has no right of dominion. And again, we saw that during the time of the covid COVID, the, the governing authorities got to determine uh, who, who suffered, who, who kept their job, who lost their job, who could provide for their family, who couldn't. Sorry, too bad for you. Shut up, get in line, <clears throat> do exactly what we tell you to do. Right? What the government wanted to do and continues to want to do is they want to play God. 
And one of the most nefarious ways that governing authorities enact tyranny, enact tyranny is through health. Your health. We're only here to help you with your health. right? And you've got to understand that. Because that's really a subplot of what we're talking about. We won't go there. But we're, we're, we're really watching what soft tyranny looks like as it takes over a culture. C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, of all the tyrannies, a, a tyrant, uh, of all the tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons, he says, than under the omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time more likelier to make hell on earth. This, is a very kind, this very kindness stings in, with intolerable insult. To be quote-unquote cured against one's will and cured uh, uh, of... Uh, States which may not regard, uh, which may not regard as a disease, is to be put on a level uh, of those who have not yet reached the age of reason, or uh, who will uh, be classified as infants, imbeciles, or domestic animals. Right. So when the government shows up, we're just here to help. You should run as fast as you can, and we're here just to help you to cure you, uh, you and you go. I don't need to be cured. It's it's tyranny. They're way out of bounds. God has placed limits on human government. The, human, the government exists to protect our God-given rights, promote what is good, punish evil. That's it. So is there a time to disobey government? Yes, when they command what God forbids, when they forbid what God commands, when they overreach, when they go outside their ordained lane. And when civil government puts restrictions on churches and gathering numbers, frequency, manner, style, worship, mandating we wear masks, mandating we don't sing, mandating whatever... They are outside their lane. I'm not concerned about the past. I'm concerned about the future. We've got to understand the principles to be able to deal with what's coming next. We need to do it in a submissive manner. We need to do it graciously. But the government has, civil authority has no authority in the practice of the polity of the church. That belongs to the pastors, teachers, elders. And again, we just have to be on look for this. And think very carefully and very clearly and very biblically. For again, the time may come very near in the future that we're going to have to think through these issues again and deal with it biblically. So that's why I've spent so much time and gone so slowly through this. I, I do still think there's more here. You're going, no, please. No, I do. I think there's more here. I think, I think we really need to think a little bit clearer. I don't, I don't know where we're going to go, but I think we need to think a little bit more clearly uh, again, on, on government's intrusion into the church and what's our response to that? What has historically been the response of the church when government intrudes and says, you've got to do this, you can't do that, you can't preach, you've got to live five miles away, you can't, you can't use that Bible translation, you've got to say our... We've got to think about that and, and take our stand because we, we want to be faithful to God and Christ and we want to give faithful testimony in the light of a collapsing world because we're part of being ambassadors for Christ, we don't have to protect our life. We don't have to protect our territory. We, don't have, we just need to be faithful and let God use the events in our life as we're a part of that and our faithfulness to him to work out his good, perfect plan for his glory, our good, and for the glory or, or for the good of those whom he has yet called to himself. 
because there's many who have yet come to faith in Christ. And maybe it's our faithful testimony that allows people to see the truth. If they come to knowledge of the truth, repent, place their faith in Christ, and then God is glorified through the Savior. All right, let's pray. Our Father and God, we're thankful for our time here. Thanks for these folks and their ability to sit for so long and to listen. And just uh, we just want to praise you and thank you. We just want to be faithful to you in all that we do. Uh, we acknowledge that you are the Lord of all. And uh, we just want to be uh, those who give a faithful account, understand our responsibility, the, the authority that you've given to government, and then how to interact with government in a manner that is uh, pleasing to you. That's our desire. Thanks for this great day of worship in the morning and the evening. We honor you in Christ's name. Amen.